with the word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the wonderful gifts that you've given us, and we pray that you would help us uh, learn from a little bit of history and from your word, especially tonight, as uh, we continue this Bible study on Lutheranism, and we pray that you would uh, help us to always conform ourselves more and more to your word, that we would live as you would have us to live. We pray this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. All right, so um, we're pretty much done with the history portion, although we're going to do a little bit more history tonight for fun. But the, uh, let's see here. If you get over to like page, if you have your books and interested, we're, um, yeah, part six, page like 250, or no, two, 246, um, page 246, yeah, we're, we're going to kind of start this new section, Living as Lutherans, and this is the final section of the book, so we'll have to figure out what we're going to do after we're all done with this, but the Living as Lutheran section covers things like... Um, Sanctification, which is a big thing we'll talk about, which is good works, right? Performing good works as Christians. And things like evangelism. We already discussed worship, right? But we'll probably revisit a little bit of that um, in this section as well. And things like devotional life and uh, things like vocation, how we live out our lives as Christians. And so really, you know, basically exactly what it says, living as Lutherans, right? So we've learned all of this doctrine in the past five parts of the book. How do we live that out is going to be the question. Now, before we do that, um, we're going to backtrack a little bit uh, to, to pick, just finish up the few things that we hadn't finished up last time. And um, there are two things that came up that I said I would talk about. Um, one was Norman had asked, what would you do if a gay person visited the church? So um, I, I promised I would discuss it, so I'm going to discuss it. And um, you thought I'd forgotten, didn't he? He wrote it down. So had you forgotten? No. Oh, good. Okay, good. I looked at one other pastor one time and talked about that, but maybe it was the elder. Because we have a memory that everybody said it was. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah, so... Basically, uh, <laughs> I, 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 I'm going to divide it into two parts. So um, first of all, and let me say this to start off with, that this goes for if, if anyone that's in a situation where they're living in external or um, public outright sin visits church, like what, what would I do? And I think you can see pretty clearly with Jesus uh, and, and how he acts towards people that the first thing I would do is not turn them away, right? The place that they need to be the most is in the Word. And how are they going to repent of their sins and come to faith in Jesus Christ if they're not in the Word, right? So this is the whole uh, – Jesus says, um, I, came, I came not for the righteous but to, to forgive sinners, Right. Um, those who are righteous have no need of a physician. Right. And uh, Jesus is constantly 
contravened by the Pharisees who are mad at him because he eats with tax collectors and sinners. And that phrase in the Gospels, they eat with tax collectors and sinners, um, oftentimes denotes things like prostitutes. right? So people who are publicly caught up in sexual sin. So for my first part answer to the question um, – oh, let me finish saying what I was saying – is th- this would go for not just someone who's actively homosexual but – um, you know, someone who's transgender, someone who's uh, known to be, you know, to sleep around, um, any anything like that, or some, someone who's an adult, known adulterer, right? Someone who's a known murderer, whatever the case is, someone who's been caught in public sin. Um, I, I I would not turn them away, right? I I would say that's great, right? That you're in church. That's where you need to be. That's the first part. Um, you need to hear the word, right? You need to to have your sins forgiven. Now, the second part of the question is, what exactly does that look like, right? And I think this is where our culture gets very confused. Is that they equate um, things like love, right, which is a Christian virtue. And loving everybody, even those who disagree with you, loving your enemies, and things like Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners, and and that Jesus didn't come for the righteous but for sinners. They equate those things and the church's love of outsiders and the church's wanting to help people who are in need with this idea that if, if we are that, if we are here to help people then that means we just have to wholeheartedly accept everything about this person and uh, encourage them and affirm them in everything that they are and do. And that's that's where it gets tricky because that's not what Jesus did, right? Jesus didn't tell the prostitutes, yeah, that's great. I love you. You're forgiven. Now keep being a prostitute. He said, go and sin no more. Right, and so. He did that with the money changers, didn't he? Right, yeah, he did that. He did that with everybody, right? So just because we accept people into the doors, doesn't mean that we accept the sinfulness, right? So we love the sinner, hate the sin. It's pretty, you know, common phrase, but there's a deep truth in that, right? We love the sinner, we hate the sin, and we don't say that it's okay for them to continue sinning, right? We don't affirm um, that this is where the the whole love is love thing, right? Where people say love is love. So, you know, who are you to say that I can't love somebody um, of the same sex, right? That's a fundamental misunderstanding of what love is, right? And we all know this, if you've you've had kids, all of us in here have had kids before. Uh, Tough love, right, involves telling people they're wrong sometimes, right? And... um, True, true love is not a kind of love that just affirms whatever people want to hear, right? That's actually a fake love, and Jesus, uh, the the prophets and Jesus talk about this, right? Peace, peace. The the false prophets are the ones saying peace, peace when there is no peace, and so we we have to avoid that as well, right? That um, when we're we accept someone into the doors, that doesn't mean that we're accepting homosexuality as a proper practice, right? That's not. What God teaches in His in His law about marriage. It's a real fine line, though, here. With you know, like you've got 
people right. that gotten into the Elka Church, you know, into that that, that group when they they walk, you know, you were talking the other day about how you know it was watered by those people in that church, and that's why they've gotten as far left as they are today. Right. Yeah. So there there is a fine line. Um, and one thing I'd say, I guess, is that getting down to the brass tacks of, okay, someone walks in here, what do we do? Well, in one sense, I don't really do anything different, right? I preach what I preach. I'm not going to change the sermon. It's not like if I'm preaching that day on uh, stewardship that I'm going to you know, instead preach on homosexuality because they walk in the door or something like that. right? So it's not like I'm going to be out to get them specifically or their sins specifically. Um but I'll, if if it comes up, like if they come up to me and they're like, I'm gay, what do you think about that? Like I'll tell them um, that I don't think that's how God made made you and, you know, I'll as gently as I can have that discussion with them. But I'm not going to um, try – I'm not going to try and make it seem like I don't really think it's wrong, right? You have to be honest, right? So that's the fine line. Um, but I'm not – I'm also not kicking them out, right? So – uh, now, there's another aspect of this that I wanted to talk about. Kind of so going along with that second part, which is that you don't accept the sin, and that's that the way that someone like that is incorporated into the congregation, or in that in that situation, is does need to be handled in a specific way, and this is true not just with this situation, but with lots of situations. And I'm actually going to bring us back to our discussion um, a long time ago at this point of closed communion. All right, closed communion, if you think about it, not so much in a theological sense, not so much 1 Corinthians 11, right? I mean, that's important. But if you think about closed communion in just kind of a social sense, it makes perfect sense, right? That in lots of situations in life, if you go into any kind of social community, you're not expected to have full access to that community as a visitor right when you walk in the doors. Right? So I'll give you an example. I was thinking about this um, kind of by analogy. I started using this in uh, teaching catechism on closed communion, and I think it, it's – at least in my mind, it's helpful analogy. Okay, so at the uh, MMA gym where I work out, where I train, I wrestle. Um, the the guys that do the Muay Thai sparring, right, the boxing. There's rules about when they're allowed to actually spar with one another, right? So if someone walks in the door on day one, they're not allowed to just put on gloves and start hitting each other in the head. Well, why is that? Well, it's obvious, right? I mean, if they don't know what they're doing, they're going to get themselves concussed very quickly, right? And we don't know what kind of person they are, right? We don't know if they're the kind of person that's going to try and take someone's head off, right? When we're in here trying to train safely with one another, right? This isn't a this isn't a fight. This is this is training, right? So, um, so there's rules, right? And and the rules are basically you have to be 18, right? Uh, you have to – if you're not 18 yet, you have to have parents' permission, all that stuff. There's there's like a membership thing that has to happen, right, kind of a paper 
membership thing that has to happen. And the coach has to have watched you train and approve that you are safe in training and also can pick who you are allowed and not allowed to train with based on your size and 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 strength and, and so on and so forth, right? Now, I don't think anyone in their right mind would say any of that is a problem, right? Off the street, looking into that as kind of a policy of this community, right? Because the goal is the safety of everyone there, right? Now, similarly, that's basically what closed communion is in the church, right? We care about people's eternal souls, and we don't want people to be spiritually harmed. And so we have a policy in place that someone who comes in from the outside can't just immediately walk up and take part of this spiritual thing that's happening when we don't know, you know who they are right, and what they believe because it could be to their harm. And that gets into the theological side of things. But I don't think it's actually in, – in this sense – and I always make this point when I talk about closed communion too, and I'm going to bring it back around to the – homosexual situation as well. But um, in in this sense, I, I've never had a problem with closed communion with someone who didn't know what it was, right? It was someone who um, like ne- had never been to church before and is coming for the first time or who grew up um, in a situation where they'd never heard of open versus closed communion. The only people who have ever been offended by closed communion are people who have been taught that closed communion is wrong, right? And because on, from an outside perspective, just from a social perspective, it makes total sense that when you walk into somewhere, if you walk into a new community of people, you don't get automatic access to everything that's going on there, right? I'll give you another example that just popped in my head right now. Like if I walk into a restaurant, I don't have a right to just walk back in the kitchen and start taste testing all the food back there, right? Like I, I'm a I'm a I'm a consumer. I'm a customer of the place, right? And not that we're making church into a consumer type of place, but there is this sense, right, which there the what's happening at church is primarily for the Christians there. Right, for the members that are part of that church. Um, and yes, we want to he- we want visitors to hear the word, but that's something that we that as they hear the word and they come to faith and then they're taught, then they get to join into the full thing. Right? But in no other aspect in life does would someone get to just come in and join in the full thing right away. Right? So um, this is just kind of that's just kind of something to think about. But Okay, to bring that back to the um, homosexuality situation. So if someone who's a homosexual, uh, practicing homosexual walks in, first of all, yes, we, we greet them, we, we love them, we treat them like anyone else. They get to hear the word, they get to sit there, right, participate in the service. But um, do they get to take communion? No, because we practice closed communion, for one. Um, and two, one of the aspects of closed communion is that if someone's living in outright public sin, that they don't get to commute, right? Now, there are other things that I would also probably be aware of with that specific situation or with, say, someone who's transgender or with someone who is convicted of pedophilia or something like that. 
um, if they come to church, there are things that you have to be aware of in kind of just a social setting that they don't get to participate in right away. Right. So if someone is a practicing homosexual and has been visiting the church and they ask me if they can come sit in on the young family's dinner. No. <laughs> right. Um, because we care about the safety of our children and because you're not a young family. Right. Um, and whatever else. Right. So that the, these are just, um, you know, hypothetical situations. But. um I, my, my point is, one, one of the things, I, I would obviously let them in, right? It's not like we hold anyone back from coming inside the, the doors of the church and hearing the word. But that also does not automatically mean that they get full access to everything, right? And if they wanted to become a member of the church, then they would need to work on amending, repenting of their sin and amending their ways, just like anyone else would, Right? I'm not going to confirm someone who is cheating on their wife, right? I'm not going to confirm someone who's, uh, you know, openly an alcoholic, right? Um, until they start working on that and repenting of their sins, right? So, um, yeah, that's basically it. But I think my 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 major point here is that, like Gary said, there's a fine line. That just because we accept someone in the doors doesn't mean and, – and we're happy that someone's here – also doesn't mean that they are somehow totally affirmed in everything that they do and somehow have totally full access to everything. And that's the mistake that our culture has made. They're like, well, if you really love me, then you're going to let me do whatever I want. right? You're going to let me take communion. You're going to let me – be a member of the church, you're going to, you know, and it's like, nowhere, first of all, nowhere else in society does that even exist. Uh, but second of all, uh, it's just not even logical. So, yeah. Uh, in scripture, uh, where, where does it talk about communion clothes and, and close communion? First Corinthians 11. Indianapolis, yeah. Indianapolis. You have to have a, you have to have a proof. You have to have a membership card to, to live in that area. And that right? They, they they check your credit. They check everything about you. And I don't know how it all works, but my cousins are up there. And they say that you have to have you're approved before you you are able to come into that house, that area, and buy a house. Hmm. Yeah, that's um. That's interesting. Um, I mean, that's kind of always existed to some degree, right? It's like, like midlining, you know, that's the way they've done it in a lot of areas. You know, that you can't, some people can't get into certain areas because they've redlined that area. Yeah. In theory, like, that's... Uh, that's not right. No, it's it's not right. Like, that. there's, a, I mean, the whole not letting people in thing, like... I mean that on a basic small scale, um, and 
I mean, anyone can come to Jesus and repent of their sins, right? So it's not like it's not like I'm saying someone who comes to church who's not a, allowed into every thing that we do as a church right away that that person could never be involved, right? Or never come like there what needs to happen is they need to repent of their sins and take a new membership class, right? Which is easy enough. Um, obviously, in a social situation where someone is purposely not being allowed to do something that they should be able to do, that's a that's a different situation. So, I'm not talking about like Chinese social credit systems here. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm talking about like basic, uh, kind of just like manners, really. I mean, um, well, I don't know what a church would do if they and they're in common with they're not letting people in certain areas because they don't meet their criteria. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'd have to... There's probably a lot more to it than what I know. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure. People have all sorts of weird ideas about things. Yeah, there's, there's towns in Arizona that, you know, you can't buy a house unless you're over 55. I mean, it's discriminating against people that are under 55, but it's a, an adult community, so it's no big deal. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think. They've been challenged too. You know, that 55 years, a lot of those places have challenged the hourly. Yeah, those kind of situations get into um, difficult political problems. <laughs> my my point about people coming into church is really just uh, the the basic concept that like if you are entering into a social community that you're not already a part of that in most places in life you don't get totally full access right away right to something there are standards that you might have to meet um and so that that could obviously be abused but i don't think that that's wrong on the on the absolute surface of it right like like if I have a neighbor move into my neighborhood or like a neighbor move in next door, um, I don't let my kids go play with their kids like the day they move in before we've ever talked to them or met them, right? Like um, maybe at a different time yeah. in history I would, but um, right now <laughs> I, I wouldn't, right? I'd, I'd want to meet the parents first and – and get and get to know them and and whatnot. So like, well, like lots of times, like where they have those kind of restrictions, like the 55, you know, people. That if what they do, a lot of those people, they're they they're most of the grandparents that are in there. They've got a bunch of grandchildren. Yeah. All those grandchildren are over there all the time. Some some of those areas and it's really it defeats the purpose of being in a, in a 50. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm not an expert on retirement communities, so. Uh, well. Several years ago, uh, we were doing horror practice, uh-huh. and uh, stayed back to the door. Some people were knocking, and I think I've it. It was on a Wednesday, yeah. and it was a day after the second time Obama was elected president. Right. Um, and uh, they uh, 
state handled it right, because otherwise our church probably would have gotten protested. They asked, you know. What's your stance on gay marriage? Yeah, or, uh, being gay. Yeah. Um, I told Steve to tell them. I mean, this was way after the fact, obviously, because when he told me the story, I said, you should have just told them that our stance is the same as Obama's was 10 years ago. <laughs> they probably wouldn't have liked that. <laughs> so. Oh, they would not been old enough to remember. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay, so you as a pastor would know that that person was gay. How would the members? Otherwise, the members. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. Like, this is all hypothetical, right? So, like, how do? Yeah, I mean, there's multiple different hypothetical situations. So, so one one hypothetical situation is this person calls me beforehand and says, "Hey, I'm gay. I want to visit your church," and I say. Yeah, that's great. You know, come visit the church. And then um, maybe I try and just meet with them a little bit beforehand and just, you know, I'll tell them about close communion and and tell them how to find stuff in the bulletin and maybe suggest someone that they sit with, right? Um, If it's – if someone walks in and they're wearing a pride flag T-shirt and – or say a couple walks in, right, and they're both wearing pride flag T-shirts or something like that, and they're holding hands, then that's a little more obvious, right? That's a different situation, right? Um, if, if say, it's the first situation, the person kind of keeps coming, um, there might be select people like the elders and, you know, maybe certain families and stuff I would I would let know. Um, and I would probably even tell the person like, Hey, I'm going to, uh, if it's okay with you, I'm going to talk to some of the members about your situation just so, you know, we're all on the same page or whatever. Um, now it would be different if they had like confessed to me, right. And it was under the seal of the confessional, in which case I, um, want to tell people there was a, uh, I can't really talk about that. Um, so there, there's lots of – my point is there's lots of hypotheticals, right? So like the what-if game is kind of infinity if we keep playing it. Why? So um, there are different – I would handle it differently based on the situation. So, But I, I would make – here's what I'll tell you. I'd make sure that everyone is safe, right, and, and that um, – there wasn't any danger in the congregation, and not, I'm not trying to s- imply that gay people are unsafe or whatever, but right. um, that I'd, I'd make prioritize the safety and 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 comfort of of the members, right? That no one felt unsafe or or anything. Um, and this maybe maybe not homosexual per per se, but also going along with that often tied into that community is like pedophilia and stuff like that. So, you know, there's those situations get even more, a little more messy, but, um, anyhow. If they had been, I mean, if they had been, um, 
christened, baptized, as a Lutheran, Missouri Senate Lutheran, later in life, they stray away, and then they start coming. Would they not expect the ability to take communion? They might expect that, but that's doesn't mean that they get to. Okay. All right. I didn't know that if that would have been the exit or that would have been the, the way out of Well, it has nothing to do with the homosexuality per se. It has to do with, like, leaving the church, for one, um, and two, like, un- unrepentant sin, right? So... Assuming I know this person is living in unrepentant sin, I mean, I won't. I'm not going to commune Gary if I know he's living in unrepentant sin, <laughs> right? So, uh, no offense to Gary, I just <laughs> I decided to pick someone, and my hand my hand went that way, right? So, it has nothing to do with whether or not a person is a baptized Lutheran. It has has to do with with if they are living in unrepentant sin or not, and if they're a member member of the church, active member of the church. So. I always wondered, you know, like a lot of people, I've, I've got some people I've worked with in situations where uh, they, like, well, just an idea what the situation I, I had, you know, before me was that uh, this one, one guy that I worked with every day for years, his, his mother had a a racial couple come to their uh, her house mm-hmm. and they, they were having a party there and then he didn't know that they were going to be coming he didn't live with his mother but he came over there and he told those that couple that they weren't welcome at, at his mother's house mm. and I mean he made him leave he was a jerk <laughs> yeah <laughs> That's I know, but, but what I'm afraid of is that a church can be you know, when you do let people like that, as you know her that way, and they, the, the world thinks that your whole church is probably they're open to that. Yeah, well, the church is always open to criticism, right? Like, um, like, the church was open to criticism when they were being persecuted by Nero in the first century, right? Like, they didn't bow down to Roman gods, and so they were persecuted. And we don't bow down to the gods of our culture either, and so we'll be persecuted too. And that just is what it is. <laughs> I know that's incredibly not uplifting, but it's like, um, yeah, I mean, this is they the the culture wants to make homosexuality like the civil rights issue right and the difference is that in the bible there's it's not a sin to be black it is a sin to be homosexual so that's the that's the difference and that's what the bible says right and that's where we have to draw the line those two things are unrelated Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the other people that were in the hospital with me were 
Right. They believed in uh, Sure. Uh, just like I did, and I saw them come up there, and I, and I, you know, saw my parents do the same thing. But then I saw, uh, you know, the young young man that I was there. You know, we would give, you know, like puppet shows to the doctors and nurses and stuff. You know, yeah. And we were in the same room, and he died mm-hmm. with rheumatic fever, and I just. I realized then that you know you shouldn't be you know think about what color of skin people are. You ought to think what character they are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's I'm a. I'm afraid people think if I allow that. Yeah. So uh, it's a it's a it's a it's a good point, and we need to we we do we should be careful of. Um, how we judge others and what we judge others for. Um, so that that's another thing. If when it you were talking there, it popped in my head the whole "judge not, lest ye be judged" thing. What Jesus says there is the same measure. For, first of all, he's talking about he's talking about determining whether or not someone goes to heaven or hell, right? So it's not our job to say whether or not someone's going to heaven or hell. Right, only God is is the final and ultimate and absolute judge. But what he also says there is the measure that you use will be used against you, right? And so, what's the measure we want to use whenever we judge something? Well, it's truth, right? And what God says is true, right? So, what God says about homosexuality is true. What God says about race is true, right? So, um. We have to – we can't – what the world does is says, um, well, you have to use – you can't judge me because I have my own truth, right? Well, that's not what Jesus says. Um, the other thing that he says there, which I was, I was actually going to bring up earlier and I forgot, is that um, beware not to cast pearls before swine lest they devour it and trample it underfoot and then – or no – lest they trample it underfoot and then turn and devour you, right? So the image there is that um, there are people who will blaspheme the gospel, and if you share with them the gifts that God gives to his people, they will trample those and then turn and try and devour you, right? And so this is what kind of what I was saying about like, we're careful about letting people in all the way right away. We let people in, and we want them to hear the, the word, right, which is efficacious. But we don't let people in all the way right away um, because we don't know if they're trying, you know, what they're, they're out to do. And Jesus does warn us that people are out there to per- well, are out there and will persecute you and attack you, right? So, um, like, to, to put it in a practical way right like there are i've heard of situations where like a gay couple will call a known conservative church and ask the pastor to do their wedding and then try and sue them for when he says no right and um this is why jesus says don't don't cast pearls before swine right and Look, Jesus sounds a lot meaner than I do, right? <laughs> I, I don't call people swine, you know, walking around talking to people, but Jesus did. So um, I, I think in some ways, sometimes we're a little too 
eager to be nice, right? And just realizing that niceness and love are not the same things, right? We should be gentle, that's true. We should love our enemies, that's true. But sometimes that means being very aware and careful. So anyway, it's that it's just that fine line again, right? But all right, um, I think we've we've beat that horse enough. Um, let's move on to the other thing I promised I would talk about a little bit, and this will probably take up the rest of our time, which is uh, Vatican II. So this doesn't really have to do with living as Lutheran so much, although it kind of does. Um, so Vatican II was um, a council, right? So if uh, you remember back when we talked about, say, the Nicene Creed, mm-hmm. that, that, yeah, there's the Council of Nicaea. It was this group of pastors that came together, right, and, and had a council. And um, it was ecumenical because it was all the pastors from everywhere. Well, the Roman Catholic Church throughout the centuries has continued to have councils, right? Now they don't. At some point, they they didn't, you know, they didn't keep inviting Lutherans or Eastern Orthodox or whatever. You know, they had their own councils, but uh, they were. Uh, this was a council that happened, and it happened um, in. I, think, I believe it's. Let me double check here. I think. It, yep. 1962 uh, to 1965, um, they had, I think, four different major sessions in those years, um, and they met at St. Peter's Basilica in, in Rome, right, at the at the Vatican, right, Vatican Council. Well, I thought you said 1952. No, 1960 to 1965. So this is going back to some of that stuff we were talking about before, 1960s and 70s. Um, okay, so why are we talking about this? We're talking about this because a lot of the stuff, if you remember, that we talked about in worship and a lot of the stuff we talked about in the 60s and 70s, um, theologically, we tied back somewhat to Vatican II, right? Well, sometimes you'll hear this phrase when you're talking about theology or worship or something um, with someone is, oh, that changed at Vatican II, right? Uh, If you're talking to a Roman Catholic or a Lutheran, oh, that changed at Vatican II. Well, what was Vatican II, and, and why why did it change these things, and, and how does it relate to us? Okay, so um, let, let me start about how it relates to us. Sometimes, you I don't know if you've heard this phrase before, it's probably less common in the South than it is in the Midwest, but um, the phrase, the Catholic sneeze and the Lutherans catch a cold. You ever heard that? Okay, so that that's a phrase to describe this phenomenon that seems to have occurred after Vatican II, where when the Roman Catholic change it, Roman Catholics change their worship practice, the Lutherans follow suit a number of years later. And why does that occur? Right? Like how how does that happen? Part of it is the size of the Roman Catholic Church in America. So This is harder to believe living in the South, but the Roman Catholic Church is the largest church body across America um, by far, like vastly outnumber Protestants. Now, in the South, that's not actually true Um, in in all areas, right? Like in DeSoto County, Protestant churches vastly outnumber Roman Catholics, right? So here it doesn't look like it. 
But if you drive across America and count up all the churches, there's way more Roman Catholics churches than there are. Um, now, if you add all the Protestant churches together, there's more Protestant churches. But as far as if you compare Roman Catholics to Lutherans, Roman Catholics to Methodists, Roman Catholics to Baptists, Roman Catholics are the largest, right? There's more Roman Catholic churches than any other one church. So Roman Catholics do exert a major influence on the religious landscape of America. So that's part of it, right? Like, And kind of going along with that, Roman Catholics do worship most similarly to how Lutherans do, right? Because our worship came from the Western Rite Common Service, which came out of the medieval Roman Catholic Church, right? Like our divine service structure is a descendant of Roman Catholic churches, which if you remember back when we talked about the Reformation, it's really not that we ever left the Catholic Church. It's more that the Catholic Church left us, right? So we're continuing on the tradition that we received, okay? But nonetheless, the services are similar. They're very large. So whenever they do something, Lutherans are like, oh, they're doing something. Maybe we should kind of do something too, right? Um, so that's just that's part of it. Um, but the other part of it has to do with what Vatican II was. So we already said it's a council. What Vatican II was really trying to do as a council was adapt the Roman Catholic Church um, to the modern world, right? To the 20th century and, and to the now to the 21st century, right? But in the as we talked about before, the 1960s and 70s, lots of things in life were changing, right? You were coming to this climax of the industrial revolutions and to the beginning of the sexual revolution and, and well to the resurgence of the sexual revolution lots of things were changing and um the roman catholic church felt that they needed to adapt right they needed to um make sure that they were keeping up with the times and there was a couple reasons for that so one was kind of as they were growing in america um one thing was kind of like just – oh, well, hold on. Let me go, go back to what I was saying first before I get into all that. So Lutherans in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, and so forth also had this same uh, type of idea, right? I think every church did, that as, as things are rapidly changing in the world, the church has a feeling where it needs – to keep up stay relevant stay relevant right and that's not a bad thing right okay so um take uh take transgenderism right for instance transgenderism like no one talked about five years ago 10 years ago definitely not 20 years ago right i mean there were people who were like drag queens maybe but not what we're talking about today with surgeries and you know, all, all this kind of stuff, right? Like, just not a, not a thing, right? The church needs to talk about that, right? We need to have these discussions about, okay, what if a transgender person comes into the door, right? What do we do, right? That's an important discussion, right? And we, so it's, it's not a bad instinct. What I'd say about that is that um, when you're talking about relevance, right, is that 
some things should change, other things should not. Right? So you should th- t- just take the Bible. The Bible is really the most basic thing here, right? Um, when you're talking about the Bible and culture, right? You want to apply the Bible to the culture, right? The Bible should not stay, change, right? The Bible is God's word, right? The Bible stays the same. You apply the Bible to the changing culture, right? The mis- a mistake is to say, oh, the culture's changing, the Bible's out of date, we should apply the culture to the Bible and change the Bible. That's that's the mistake, right? And that's a little bit of what happens at Vatican II, which we'll discuss. But um, there's there's things that should change and things that should not change, right? What you change is your applications, right? So when I preach, my preaching is relevant to the culture. My preaching is relevant to the time, right? But my preaching is always preaching the text of Scripture, right? I don't change the scripture. I don't start preaching the text of culture, if you will, and then trying to apply that to the Bible, right? It's the other way around. So some things should change, others should not, right? Your application should change, um, right? Or even things like, uh, okay, take the industrial revolution. Should, Should we have um, electricity in our churches with electric-powered light bulbs. Yeah, sure, right? Why not? That has nothing to do with uh, the ch- with with the Bible, right? That has nothing to do with with uh, that. That's not going to affect God's word in any particular way, right? Um, but should we change our bathrooms? Uh, to not be male and female bathrooms anymore because the culture wants us to. Well, that would be a change to our building that does affect what we think about God's word, right? So some things should change, others should not. You have to, you have to dissect those, right? You have, to, you, have to, you have to break that down. Okay, so Vatican II, they want to adapt the Roman Catholic Church to the modern world. They want to figure out um, how to do that. And best construction is that they, again, they're trying to have these discussions about how do we apply the Bible to the modern world. Now, that's not exactly what happens, but that's that's the idea, right? Okay. Now, specifically to Vatican II, um, a couple of the things that the Roman Catholic Church was very concerned about was um, one of one thing was if you think about the history of America, despite the Roman Catholic Church now being the largest church in America, um, traditionally. America was a very Protestant country. Prior to 19th century immigration, um, America was basically solely a Protestant country. I mean, that was basically the only religion that existed was Protestant Christianity. And then you get, you know, some weird pop-up religions like Mormonism, and then, you know, eventually with enough immigration, you get other world religions as well. But Roman Catholics were few and far between in early America. And if you remember, what, what president was it that um, was the first Roman Catholic? Kennedy. Kennedy, right. And, yeah, and, and it was people were very skeptical, right? 
that, yeah, because are you are you the question was are you uh, dedicated to America or are you dedicated to Rome, right? That was the big question, and so um, this was one of the things that they kind of wanted to deal with was their relationship with kind of Protestant America, right? So that that was part of it, right? How do we and and also in kind of more in a more global context, how does a Roman Catholic Church function in a liberal democracy, right? Versus um, like a classical liberal democracy, as opposed to kind of a um, monarchy, which is what they were used to functioning in throughout most of the centuries prior, right? So. How do they? How do you? How do you kind of function in that modern world? And so that that was one thing. Um, but yeah, that, that's really all I was going to say about that. So that that's the idea. They wanted to adapt to the modern world. But Lutherans also kind of had that uh, same instinct, right? That we need to adapt to the modern world. And so Lutherans did in the the years after Vatican II look to what the Roman Catholics did to some degree, right? All right, so what actually came out of Vatican II? What are the brass tacks of this? What are the, um, the main reforms that the Roman Catholic Church made? Because right, they, they basically decided um, that thing, some things were going to change. What are the things that changed? Yeah, uh, Steve. The, they shortened the, uh, the Latin to uh, the vernacular of, of yeah. the area we're in. So I think they changed it just to the English language. At that the liturgical... Yeah, liturgical reforms are the big thing. And one of those is uh, Latin, changing the Latin mass to the, um, yeah, the, the language of the people, right? Uh, whether it's English or whatever it is, right? Because, you know, Spanish mass or, or whatever the case is. Um, I don't recall specifically okay. if they so changed any. Standards have definitely changed. It. Yeah. Years have passed, but I mean. Yeah. But I thought that was one too because. Yeah, I'm not sure. John I, the 23rd was the one who was at the Vatican too. Yeah. Yeah, John John the Twenty Third, and um, who was the other guy? There were two popes during Vatican II. Actually, there was a change. Um, Paul for, Paul VI was. Yeah, I think it was a John and a Paul. Yep, and then and then after that came John Paul the Second, which is confusing. But um, anyhow, right. So the a lot of liturgical reforms took place. Um, and these were the things that – I think the liturgical reforms are the things that most affected Lutherans and most affected uh, your lay Roman Catholics, right? So all of a sudden you're not having the Mass in Latin anymore. You're having it in English or in, if you're uh, a Spanish speaker in Spanish or whatever the case may be. And um, this is – this one's always kind of funny because you know, Martin Luther had this idea you know, a few hundred years earlier, but they thought it was – they kicked him out for it. <laughs> um, but all of a sudden in the 1960s, they finally decided it's an okay idea to have the, the mass in the language of the people. Um, and so, and, and, and that, that also goes to show, by the way, that 
Vatican II, in my opinion, is a pretty mixed bag as far as like the things that come out as far as if they're helpful or not for the Roman Catholic Church. Now, my and at the end of the day, my stance on the Roman Catholic Church is the same, is that they've rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ and that they are a heterodox church body. So, I mean, that is what it is. But Vatican II is kind of interesting in that, like like this, for instance, this was actually kind of a Lutheran idea in one sense. Um, but there are other things that they do that are not very Lutheran. So, all right, uh, the a couple other kind of liturgical reforms um, that bled over into, specifically over into Lutheranism, is the one to three year lectionary. So um, there used to just be a one-year lectionary that everyone followed. And then they thought, uh, well, we, we need to change it for whatever reason. Um, and they made this three-year lectionary, which then the Lutherans picked up on in the next hymnal they published, right? And uh, you, know, you know me, I still prefer the historic one-year because, you know, it stood the test of time for thousands of years, so, or, well, thousand plus years. So why, why go and change it? But uh, that, that's one of the things they did. Um, they put the uh, altars in the... Altar in the middle of the chancel, right, as opposed to up against the wall. Um, and had the priest facing uh, what's called versus populum in Latin toward the people more instead of away um, toward toward the altar more, which is um, you know me on that too. I'm also more traditional as far as that goes. Uh, there are, there are certain times when you're supposed to face the altar and certain times when you're supposed to face the people, and the altar is supposed to be facing uh, toward where you're facing God. So. Um, Anyway, it, it's a weird change, but they changed that. Um, and you, if you talk to old Catholics, they'll be like, yeah, it's really weird that the altar's all up in the middle of this <laughs> chancel. Um, and then, uh, surprisingly, um, I, I think a lot of people don't know this, because they think of Roman Catholic worship as, like, generally high church. But Vatican II is one of the first um, – coming out of Vatican II is one of the first places you start to get contemporary worship. Um, in the in the church, and there's a lot of Roman Catholic churches starting even in the 60s and 70s that had like guitars and praise bands and, and things. Um, and this obviously picked up way more steam in Baptist and non-denominational churches and Pentecostal and such churches uh, going down the road, but. The 1960s is really when contemporary worship actually was invented, I guess, so to speak, right? Where you had this change from singing the church's music to singing this kind of new genre of praise songs. Um, and not to say that that all praise songs are bad or anything like that, but that it, it was distinctively a new genre, let's say, of hymns versus praise songs. And the fact that... And, and putting, instead of having like an organ or a choir lead, lead the music, have a band that mimicked rock bands 
lead the music and have them especially in front of people rather than from behind, right? So this was all distinctively new, um, aka contemporary rather than traditional worship. And uh, that, that kind of came out of Vatican II, right? Um, but those are just the liturgical reforms. The, the other things that came out, which are, are kind of interesting as well, were that things uh, for your um, – Roman Catholics became a lot looser on things in general, right? So not just on worship, but things that used to be requirements for Roman Catholics, if you wanted to be a good Roman Catholic, became optional. And so you really had the birth of what's called sometimes like shopping cart Catholicism. If you've ever heard that, like they're a shopping cart Catholic where they pick and choose what things of Catholic they want to be, right? Um, where like like eating meat on Fridays, for instance. It used to be if you wanted to be a good Roman Catholic prior to Vatican II, you did not eat meat on Fridays, right? Like that was a sin, right, if you ate meat on a Friday. But um, after Vatican II, oh, that's just an option. So maybe you'll do it during Lent, right? But you don't need to do it most of the time. Um, it also opened up just generally more liberal ideas for Roman Catholics. Now, again, you get a mixed bag here because some of the things are good, some are bad, and some are good and bad at the same time, right? So, for instance, their doctrine on salvation, they started to re-examine. So prior to Vatican II, on paper at least, if, if someone was going to go to heaven, they needed to be Roman Catholic, right? A lot of people don't remember this, right? I think uh, this is one of the things Luther was so angry about, was that Roman Catholics taught that if you were going to go to heaven, you had to be a Roman Catholic, right? And um, that was true up into the 19th, before the 1960s. Um, I think, like, basically no one thinks that anymore. Um, not Roman Catholics, uh, not... Not basically, it seems like no one holds the opinion that if you want to go to heaven, you have to be a specific thing. So um, maybe maybe Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or something like that, right? Um, I took a, I took a month, uh, view to Jonesboro, Arkansas for a weekend retreat, and I remember specifically that the Lutheran pastor said there, if you were not Lutheran, you weren't going to heaven. And all my kids turned around and looked at me. That's so funny because I've never heard a Lutheran pastor say that. And Luther specifically taught against that. But I've, I've heard people say that older Lutheran pastors used to say that. And I don't know how common it was. That was the only one I ever... And I don't know where it came from. But at some point there was some group in the 20th century of Lutheran pastors in America that apparently used to teach that. And I don't know if it was like, maybe it was like a scare tactic, um, but it's not been in any published theology right. I've ever read. Because I asked him, I said, where in the Bible do we find this? Or where in, you know, uh, right. the, the catechism that you're teaching? Right, yeah. Where can you show this to me? I, I mean, Lutherans have always. Yeah, I I don't I think it's like it, it must have been a um, must have been like a scare tactic or something. That's like the only like way I can. Maybe recognize. they were trying to build membership. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Well, you weren't supposed to intermarry Catholics and Lutherans. Yeah, inter- I mean, inter- yeah, intermarriage. Well, that's so that's actually another um, thing that changed at Vatican II was intermarriage with non-Catholics. That that became an an option, right? Um, what year did y'all, y'all get married? Seventy-three. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's still like at that point, it's still kind of like on the books that maybe you shouldn't, but. My bro- my brother right. uh, had to become Catholic to marry his wife because she was Catholic, and that was 1959. Right. Yeah. We didn't tell my grandfather we were getting married because she was Catholic. And I was That's right. No. He thought, huh? Hey, it he all thought, worked out. Because he thought, yeah, that he was at war with the Catholic. I mean, you know, they had separate the cemeteries. Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah, was, they did. Yeah, they yeah. do. Still doing new hands. Yeah, so that's so why we didn't tell him that she was Catholic. Is that right? I don't know. Your mom said, it'll kill my dad if he found out. She was Catholic. <laughs> I met it once and then he died. I said, somebody must have died. <laughs> 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 it will kill me. <laughs> that's just a terrible thing. <laughs> no, 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 I don't think I ever said that to your mother. To come to our wedding, so I, I have become... Lutheran before the wedding. Yeah. Otherwise. Well, and I will say that, like, there is a wholesomeness. I mean, we should not be unequally yoked in our marriages, and we should strive to believe the same things as our spouses. So there is a wholesomeness in wanting the and and having that conversation. Like, I would not advise um, if if someone was like, there, there's different levels to this, right? So like, if someone was like a Lutheran and a Muslim and they were like, we want to get married. And I'd be like, what are you going to raise the kids? And they were like, I'm going to raise them Lutheran and I'm going to raise a Muslim. Like, be like, you should hold off on the wedding till we figure that out. Right. Um, but if there's someone who's like a Lutheran and a Baptist and I'm like, what are you going to do with the kids? And they're like, we're going to raise them Lutheran. Um, and I'm interested in learning more about Lutheranism, be like, okay, that's a different situation, right? So, um, but there, so again, like this is a, 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 it goes to show it's a very mixed bag, right? So on one hand, it's good that the, that the Roman Catholics said you don't have to be Roman Catholic to go to heaven because that's not true. On the other hand, they also have come to the point now following after that where they believe you don't have to believe in Jesus to go to heaven, right? Which is not true. <laughs> and so um, that it's a mixed bag, right? So Vatican II is very weird in this way that it brings ideas into the church, some of which are older, some of which are newer, and um, it's, it's quite confusing, right? But I think overall, we'll have to talk more about it next week, um, but overall, Vatican II ended up doing a disservice to the Roman Catholic Church in the long term, and probably definitely a disservice to Lutherans, but there are things that probably needed to change anyway, right? But the thing that really needs to change about the Roman Catholic Church is they need to stop believing in the Pope as their savior and they need to start believing in the Bible and salvation by grace alone. And that didn't happen at Vatican II. So 
Um, it doesn't really matter what did because that didn't. So, all right, uh, we'll have to pick this up next week. I went way over time. I apologize. Um, let me kind of mark where we are here. All right, let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the good gifts that you have given us. And uh, we thank you for all the wonders of this creation. And we pray that you would help us live our lives according to your holy word. And we pray that you would help us see in your word what is true and not true. And that we would uphold that standard above any worldly standard or above the standards of our own hearts. We pray that you would be with us and guide us and give us your peace as we go throughout this week and the rest of our days. We pray this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.